This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I have a special announcement for you today. This year marks the 25th anniversary of Slate. And for a limited time only, we're offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from shows like Slow Burn, Amicus, and Political Gabfest. For the past quarter century, Slate has been covering all the major news events, from elections to social issues to historic court decisions to police violence and protests. Our culture shows have debated if things are sexist, named the best summer songs, and explained the latest TikTok trends. If we've become a part of your listening routine, we ask that you support our work by joining Slate Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash a word plus to keep us going for another 25 years. Again, we're giving you $25 off an annual membership through October 31st. So sign up at slate.com slash a word plus. This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. With multi-million dollar contracts and high-profile endorsements, professional athletics has produced more black millionaires than any other industry in America. But playing on a pro team doesn't insulate you from racial politics. All the sports are the same, except with the exception of the NHL. White owners, white coaches, white media, white season ticket base, black player. Race and current controversies in sports. Coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. It's a great time of year for sports fans. In the last two weeks, the NBA and the NHL seasons both started. The WNBA season just ended. The NFL winners and losers are starting to emerge in the expanded season. And baseball playoffs are in full swing. To top it off, a new Netflix series about the life of former NFL cornerback Colin Kaepernick debuts on Netflix at the end of the month. Mind you, these are mostly on-the-court happenings. Off the court, Brooklyn Nets guard Kyrie Irving, one of the most prominent players in the NBA, has refused to get vaccinated against COVID-19. Football coach and former Monday Night Football host John Gruden has stepped down from coaching the Las Vegas Raiders after a trove of racist, sexist, and homophobic emails he wrote came to light. Join us to talk about these issues and everything else is veteran sports writer and commentator Howard Bryant. He's also the author of Full Dissidence, Notes from an Uneven Playing Field. And Howard Bryant joins us now. Welcome to A Word. Uh, Jason, how are you doing? I am so excited for this. So I want to start off with the big picture, right? The NBA and the NFL have very different reputations when it comes to sort of race and politics. The NBA, at least the public seems to think, is more open to allowing players to express political opinions. And the NFL is the, the mean old nasty dean that supposedly doesn't let people say anything, even the simplest of protests, unless it's sort of pro right wing, you know, attitudes and beliefs one way or another. Is that actually true? Is the NBA really 
more progressive and open to political expressions from black athletes? Or is that just what we see because they're more empowered in that sport than they are in the NFL? Well, it's a, it's a great question, and it's based on how you frame it. Is it more? Well, yeah, it is, because one of the things that you have in the NBA is you've got you've got a different workforce. You've got an, a 78% black workforce, and, and most of the white workforce is they're not American, they're foreign. So you're not getting that suburban pushback that you get in baseball. You're not getting that white middle-class suburban pushback that you'll get in football. You're not getting that same type of, of, of reaction from the rest of the membership. And I know the NBA, this is the byproduct of the dream team, depending on your generation, how old you are. Who's the best white American-born player in the NBA? When we were coming up, you had Larry Bird and Kevin McHale and Danny Ainge and Tom Chambers and all those guys. Today, the white player is a is a European player. So that gives more agency to the black American uh, basketball player. The other thing is, is that you have to think about the nature of the two sports. The NBA is a best player wins league, right? There's only 10 guys on the court. So if you've got Michael Jordan and I don't, you're going to win. I mean, when LeBron James is on your team, you are automatically a title contender. No matter where he plays, that team is going to be a contender because the nature of that sport, if there's only 10 guys, that one guy is the difference maker. It's not true in football, which is why you have that next man up mentality and that everybody is sort of replaceable and disposable. The NFL quarterback is the closest thing that you're going to get to the best player wins thing, but he doesn't play defense. So it's not so it's not the same. And so so you absolutely have a difference. The the area where it's not different at all is the pyramid. And when you think about how these sports are sold, all the sports are the same, except with the exception of the NHL. White owners, white coaches, white media, white season ticket base, black player. That pyramid does not change, whether it's the NBA or whether it's the NFL or whether it's Major League Baseball. Baseball, you extract a little bit because I always refer to baseball as a white suburban sport that is reinforced by foreign labor, right? That's what baseball really is because the black player is down to 7.7%. And so because of that, the business part of it does not change. If you took the black player out of the NBA, it's as white as Apple or IBM or any other company. Going with that, because I think this is a big part of where and and how the news gets covered. I want to talk a little bit about sort of the focus on COVID-19 and sports, because I think there's a real racial element to that. So, you know, the vast majority of of these leagues have gotten vaccinated, but you have a few high profile African-American players in several sports who have said, hey, I'm not going to. So a lot of people may not know this. Evander Kane, who's a left winger for the Sharks fairly prominent player. This guy just got suspended for submitting a fake vaccine card, <laughs> even though there's no vaccine mandate for hockey. And then you've got Kyrie Irving, who's on the Brooklyn Nets, who are supposed to be a title contender this year. And he says he won't be vaccinated for COVID-19 and even had a whole clip on Instagram Live recently talking about why he wouldn't. This is one body that I get here. And you telling me what to do with my body. And it has nothing to do with the organization. I'm going to put that out there. It has nothing to do with the Nets. It has nothing to do with my teammates. This has everything to do with what's going on in our world. And I'm being grouped in to something that's bigger than, than just the game of basketball. I'm a human being. I have feelings. I have thoughts. But I'm staying grounded in what I believe in. It's not 
about being anti-vax. If you choose to give vaccine, I support you. If you choose to be unvaccinated, I support you. So, Howard, you've called Kyrie contrarian without a cause for a long time. One, why do you think some of these prominent, high-profile African-American athletes are saying they don't want the vaccine? And then second, do you think the news coverage on black athletes is sort of biased when it comes to vaccine hesitancy in a way that it isn't for majority white sports like, I don't know, hockey? Yeah, well, of course. Yes to both questions. You, we started out this conversation in your intro. You were talking about this sport producing more black millionaires than any other industry. They're the ones we listen to. They're the ones who made it. They're the ones who have the prominence. So therefore... We listen to them, even when we probably shouldn't be listening to them. They get (laughs) all kinds of dispensation when you sit back and you say, oh, well, what am I listening to you for, right? Why am I I sharing, why am I discussing geopolitics with you? I'm not this, you're not qualified to talk about this. But when you put a microphone in front of LeBron James, you put a microphone in front of Kevin Durant, you put a microphone in front of Tom Brady, they're the ones we listen to. And when it comes to black players, 100% more, because they are the ones generally in our culture who we listen to i mean this is the this is the downside of two things this is the downside of the black body being the commodity that it's been for the past 300 years in this country it's also the byproduct of the in in in, in a strange way when you bring up the pandemic this is the the weird offspring of Colin Kaepernick and LeBron James and these guys and all of their empowerment. Now it's sort of gone, it's gone wild, right? So you you want empowerment? You want activism? You got it, right? You want to you want these guys to use their platform? Okay, you got it. I think what people don't un- understand is that activism does not mean using your powers for good. It means it means advocating a position. This is one of these things where careful what you wish for. And and I think that the players absolutely have a um they've got a responsibility here to at least recognize the different ways where they can be manipulated. I think that we've gone overboard a little bit uh because it is an anti-black culture. Whether no matter what it is, it's anti-black, and the reason why it's anti-black is because you will use whatever black position you need to for, to to further whatever position harms us, right? So, are the players in the NBA any different than the white neighbors I have down the street who are walking their dogs with no mask, who are completely not vaccinated? No, they're not any different at all. Where John Smoltz, the broadcaster for the baseball playoffs, he's not vaccinated. Novak Djokovic, the world number one player, is not sure he's going to go play at the Australian Open because now Australia is is, is suggesting they're not going to let you in the country if you're not vaccinated. There's an entire white community of unvaccinated athletes. The difference is, is that white doesn't stick to each other. They get to be individuals. When a black player says something, he's speaking for everybody. And so, or supposedly, and and that's where you have this disconnect. Are the numbers any different? No. Vaccine hesitancy is a byproduct of where we've been the last several years in terms of misinformation. Are black people unique? No, in this regard. Do we have a history when people want to bring up Tuskegee and experimentation and Henrietta Lacks and all this other stuff, do you want to? Do we have a history there of of medical exploitation? One hundred percent. 
Does it apply in this individual case of the pandemic? I don't think so. As I say to my friends all the time, if they were really trying to kill us when those first vaccines became available, all those white people wouldn't have been up in Harlem looking for extra doses at five o'clock. Howard, the question I have is, especially in football, these guys take supplements, shots, pills, all sorts of stuff all the time in order to play the game. I'm sure they don't know 90% of what goes into their body. Why are they so freaked out about the vaccine? When the pandemic first hit, I remember saying something along the lines of there's a difference between effect and damage. We're feeling the effects right now because we can't go outside and you got to wear a mask. But we have no idea about the damage. I believe that if, if, if this pandemic had been met with a professional respected response and not the misinformation, then we would have a, a, a much more different collective response. But we live in an age of misinformation. We live in an age where where everyone believes in the, the deep state and the dark web and the conspiracy theories. And then you add that to Tuskegee and everything else that's happened that's that has happened in our history. You take these things combined, you've you've got a perfect storm. And I will always believe that when people talk about the the damage of the Trump presidency, this is one of the biggest areas of damage that we spent. And I'm I tell people all the time when when I when I speak to college students and and, and journalism students that there are certain years that are going to define the course of history. And obviously, in 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 my my life, my dad was a he's a Pearl Harbor. He's of the Pearl Harbor generation. Oh, wow. I'm of the Cold War generation. I think we might be close in the same generation. We're Cold War people. Yeah. My son is a 9-11 generation, born in 2004. Do not underestimate the effect of 2020 on American history. And this is really the reason why we're having this conversation. Because the misinformation, the lack of trust, that the what we've done to the medical community over the course of the past year, that you can look at someone like Kyrie Irving, and and yeah, you 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 pull him out because he's been one of the more vocal people about it, and it's seven hundred thousand, seven hundred and fifty thousand deaths in the United States alone. It is an insult to everybody to listen to him speak the way he's speaking about this. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on race in major sports with Howard Bryant. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about race in sports with sports journalist and author Howard Bryant. So we're going to turn our attention to the NFL. Earlier this month, New York Times reported racist, sexist, homophobic emails from now ex-Las Vegas Raiders coach John Gruden. Here's part of how Gruden responded in a post-game press conference to the story. I stand here uh, in front of everybody apologizing. I know I'm not, uh, I don't have an ounce of, of racism in me. I'm a, a guy that takes pride in leading people together. And I'll continue to do that for the rest of my life. And again, I apologize to D. Smith and anybody out there that, that I have offended. Now, for those of you who don't know, D. Smith is the leader of the NFL Players Union. Gruden wrote in a 2011 email that, quote, Domoris Smith has lips the size of Michelin tires. Just about a day after this press conference, Gruden announces a resignation. Maybe I'm a cynic. Do you think that that Gruden was going to be fired or removed regardless because of the content of these emails? Or do you think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he just wasn't that good a coach for the Raiders and they wanted out from that contract? Yeah, well, if you're a cynic, I don't know what that's going to make me um, because I'm I'm going to the to the left of you on this one in terms of how I felt about it. I feel like one of the things that we don't talk nearly enough about in the Gruden story is he survived it when he was only talking about black people. What did him in was the rest of it. <laughs> what what did him in was 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 dropping a slur on the commissioner, was all the other re- remarks, but everything else. You can attack black people as long as you want, forever, and you aren't going to get anywhere near the sanction, the speed in which John Gruden lost his job. And I think that people will say, well, how come you're always talking about race? Or why is race so important? Because race is a demarcating line here. Because when those emails came out and John Gruden was ins- was insulting Demora Smith, nobody said, fire that man. He didn't. And it also must be remembered that John Gruden resigned. He, he just walked and hasn't been heard from since. He made a statement and that was it. And in fact, when he made the statement, it was assumed at that time that the statement was to your point, Jason, was going to be enough. And then life goes on. He said his piece. He said he was sorry. It was a mistake or whatever. And then we keep playing ball. And it was the second wave that wiped him out. And the second wave had nothing to do with black people. You know, look, it's not a surprise to anybody that, you know, Gruden took a dig at Colin Kaepernick in one of these emails. Do you think that is going to renew public calls or interest in Colin Kaepernick's case? Does it matter anymore because he settled? Or do you think that maybe this new Netflix series coming out at the end of the month is going to remind people, hey, wait a minute, this guy got screwed and maybe put more heat on the NFL about this? Uh, No, 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 and no. And the reason is because one... The Colin Kaepernick story is over in the NFL. Colin Kaepernick has not thrown a football in the National Football League since January 1st, 2017. When you think about it, this league is not going to hire him. Somebody brought it up the other day. The Seahawks need a quarterback, but they haven't called Kaepernick. Of course they haven't called Kaepernick. They're not going to call Kaepernick. That's over. It's done. He's not going to play in the National Football League ever again. That's ball game, right? Game, set, match. Okay, so that piece of it is not surprising at all. As for the Netflix series, the Netflix series is is scripted and it's a story about him growing up. It's not rigorous journalism. It's not a documentary. It's not something that will make us revisit or reinterpret what we've seen since 2016. I think that is going to be more 
second act Kaepernick branding type stuff. Um, the NFL chapter of Colin Kaepernick's life is over. And I, I have seen zero evidence that that is an outrageous or even remotely controversial statement. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on race and racism in major American sports. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives. But those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today we're talking about race in major sports with veteran sports commentator and author Howard Bryant. You have talked for years about the dearth and the almost now extinction of black journalists, especially on television, covering sports. What do you see as the greatest challenges for black journalists now who seem to be increasingly shrinking on on the major networks? I mean, it just seems to be former athletes only and, and, and black journalists, the, the men and women who are fighting and scraping to come up from Boston and Chicago and, and, and Miami newspapers, they're just not getting a chance on television anymore. Well, I think this goes back to Howard Cosell back in the 80s when he wrote his autobiography talking about the jockocracy, which was coming. It was, it was on its way back then, and it's complete now. I will say one thing about this is that it's, it's not just black journalism. It's specifically black male journalism. Black men are being wiped out of this industry. Now, I will speak about this in my case. In my case, it was always a lark to me, right? Television, when I was coming up in the business, television was a separate business. I never thought that television was a natural progression of my career. That was something that happened with 24-hour cable news, right? Sports and politics sort of changed. Those were the two, the two bar stool types of conversations that translated really, really well to 24-hour cycles. So you're not going to get newsmakers on all the time. So who do you get? You get the journalists. And we sit there and talk sports all the time. And we sit and talk politics all the time. That was the model. So for me, there's a generation of us that got to make some money and got to be on TV and got to do this. But this was never my natural progression. For this current generation... It is their natural progression, and they do feel like television is the next cash-in. It's not going to happen. They're doomed, and they're, they're doomed because, because when you think about competition, right, you're not just competing with the white kid who came from Northwestern. You're competing with the Hall of Famer who's about to retire, and that person's going to have way more Q rating and way more visibility than you. So if you feel, and you didn't play the game, so the analysts are always going to be ex-players, and now we're getting to a point where the even the play-by-play guys are ex-players, 
And the studio guys are ex-players. And so when you look at that dynamic, you say, okay, well, where's, where's my area? Where's, where do I get in? There's no room for you. And when you watch that formula on TV, especially on sports television, white woman host, white ex-coach, black ex-player. And part of the reason why that has been done was this fear for decades that you can't have a black host and a black ex because if you know because if the if the panel is too black, then the white fan base isn't going to watch. You know, so when you start looking at it that way, there is no room for you. It is very black male specific. Is the fact that you have larger, more vocal African American and 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 minority audiences and biracial audiences and things like that who want a different kind of analysis, right? There are people out there now. I I turned off certain networks during during Kaepernick because I couldn't stand the right wing nonsense, you know, star butt kissing of of certain hosts. And I've moved towards programs either online or on the radio where there was sort of a more competent, nuanced cultural analysis. Do you think that feeding that audience is the new place for black sports journalists to go? Because there is a world where athletes want to be able to talk about real issues and they want to talk to somebody black who's not just going to ask them something stupid or something insulting. Do you think that space will open up for people, both for the athlete and for the black journalist? There are more places to speak in this country than ever before. If, if you're on the ball and if you're thinking and if you're creative, there are lots of places to say things. You can say things, you can say more things now than you could have at any point in our history because of the technology, because of what's available. That is outstanding. And that answers your question. Are there places you can go? 100% there are places you can go. My concern is, is it still a career? My concern is, is okay, does it come with healthcare? My concern is, Okay, if you want to do these things, sure, we could set up a pod tomorrow and just go do it. But how are we going to eat? I mean, this is the question. So hopefully there are going to be revenue streams out there that come along with this. Hopefully there are going to be places that absorb some of this, some of, some of these outlets, some of this creativity and recognize that there is value to it, both from a creative informational standpoint, but also from a financial standpoint. That is the hope. And I, and I do think that eventually that that will happen. But I also think that we're going to have to recalibrate our expectations as well. Uh, if you're not on one of the big networks, you know, when we get into journalism school, they always tell you, if you, if you want to make money, go down the hall and be an MBA. This generation is used to seeing journalists suddenly make a whole lot of money. And that was never the game. And maybe that's going to... And maybe we just have to rethink why we do this. Howard Bryan is a veteran sports writer and commentator. He's the author of several books, including The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and The Politics of Patriotism. I could have talked to you for hours. Howard, thanks so much for coming on a word. No, my pleasure. Call again and call anytime. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Jasmine Ellis. Asha Saluja is the managing producer of podcasts at Slate. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. 
I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.